Volume One, Section Five of the Life of Charlotte Bronte. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bruce Peary. The Life of Charlotte Bronte by Elizabeth Cleghorn Gaskell, Volume One, Section Five. Chapter Four. About a year after Mrs. Bronte's death, an elder sister, as I have before mentioned, came from Penzance to superintend her brother-in-law's household and look after his children. Miss Branwell was, I believe, a kindly and conscientious woman, with a good deal of character, but with the somewhat narrow ideas natural to one who has spent nearly all her life in the same place. She had strong prejudices, and soon took a distaste to Yorkshire. From Penzance, where plants which we in the north call greenhouse flowers grow in great profusion and without any shelter even in the winter, and where the soft warm climate allows the inhabitants, if so disposed, to live pretty constantly in the open air, it was a great change for a lady considerably past forty to come and take up her abode in a place where neither flowers nor vegetables would flourish, and where a tree of even moderate dimensions might be hunted for far and wide where the snow lay long and late on the moors, stretching bleakly and barely far up from the dwelling which was henceforward to be her home, and where often on autumnal or winter nights the four winds of heaven seemed to meet and rage together, tearing round the house as if they were wild beasts striving to find an entrance. She missed the small round of cheerful social visiting perpetually going on in a country town. She missed the friends she had known from her childhood, some of whom had been her parents' friends before they were hers. She disliked many of the customs of the place, and particularly dreaded the cold damp arising from the flag floors in the passages and parlours of Haworth Parsonage. The stairs, too, I believe, are made of stone, and no wonder when stone quarries are near and trees are far to seek. I have heard that Miss Branwell always went about the house in pattens, clicking up and down the stairs, from her dread of catching cold. For the same reason, in the latter years of her life, she passed nearly all her time and took most of her meals in her bedroom. The children respected her and had that sort of affection for her which is generated by esteem, but I do not think they ever freely loved her. It was a severe trial for any one at her time of life to change neighborhood and habitation so entirely as she did, and the greater her merit. I do not know whether Miss Branwell taught her nieces anything besides sewing and the household arts in which Charlotte afterwards was such an adept. Their regular lessons were said to their father and they were always in the habit of picking up an immense amount of miscellaneous information for themselves. But a year or so before this time a school had been begun in the north of England for the daughters of clergymen. The place was Cowan Bridge, a small hamlet on the coach road between Leeds and Kendal, and thus easy of access from Haworth, as the coach ran daily, and one of its stages was at Keithley. The yearly expense for each pupil, according to the entrance rules given in the report for 1842, and I believe they had not been increased since the establishment of the schools in 1823, was as follows. Rule 11. The terms for clothing, lodging, boarding, and educating are fourteen pounds a year, 
have to be paid in advance when the pupils are sent, and also one pound entrance money for the use of books, etc. The system of education comprehends history, geography, the use of the globes, grammar, writing and arithmetic, all kinds of needlework, and the nicer kinds of household work, such as getting up fine linen, ironing, etc. If accomplishments are required, an additional charge of three pounds a year is made for music or drawing, each. Rule third requests that the friends will state the line of education desired in the case of every pupil, having a regard to her future prospects. Rule fourth states the clothing and toilette articles which a girl is expected to bring with her, and thus concludes, the pupils all appear in the same dress. They wear plain straw cottage bonnets, in summer white frocks on Sundays, and nankeen on other days, in winter purple stuff frocks and purple cloth cloaks. For the sake of uniformity, therefore, they are required to bring three pounds in lieu of frocks, pelisse, bonnet, tippet, and frills, making the whole sum which each pupil brings with her to the school seven pounds half-year in advance, one pound entrance for books, one pound entrance for clothes. The eighth rule is, all letters and parcels are inspected by the superintendent. But this is a very prevalent regulation in all young ladies' schools, where I think it is generally understood that the schoolmistress may exercise this privilege, although it is certainly unwise in her to insist too frequently upon it. There is nothing at all remarkable in any of the other regulations, a copy of which was doubtless in Mr. Bronte's hands, when he formed the determination to send his daughters to Cowan Bridge School, and he accordingly took Maria and Elizabeth thither in July, 1824. I now come to a part of my subject which I find great difficulty in treating, because the evidence relating to it on each side is so conflicting that it seems almost impossible to arrive at the truth. Miss Bronte more than once said to me that she should not have written what she did of Lowood in Jane Eyre if she had thought the place would have been so immediately identified with Cowan Bridge, although there was not a word in her account of the institution but what was true at the time when she knew it. She also said that she had not considered it necessary, in a work of fiction, to state every particular with the impartiality that might be required in a court of justice, nor to seek out motives and make allowances for human failings, as she might have done if dispassionately analyzing the conduct of those who had the superintendence of the institution. I believe she herself would have been glad of an opportunity to correct the overstrong impression which was made upon the public mind by her vivid picture, though even she, suffering her whole life long, both in heart and body, from the consequences of what happened there, might have been apt to the last to take her deep belief in facts for the facts themselves, her conception of truth for the absolute truth. In some of the notices of the previous editions of this work, it is assumed that I derived the greater part of my information with regard to her sojourn at Cowan Bridge from Charlotte Bronte herself. I never heard her speak of the place but once, and that was on the second day of my acquaintance with her. A little child on that occasion expressed some reluctance to finish eating his piece of bread at dinner, and she, stooping down and addressing him in a low voice, told him how thankful she should have been at his age for a piece of bread. And when we, though I am not sure if I myself spoke, asked her some question as to the occasion she alluded to, she replied with reserve and hesitation, 
evidently shying away from what she imagined might lead to too much conversation on one of her books she spoke of the oat-cake at cowan bridge the clap bread of westmoreland as being different to the leaven-raised oat-cake of yorkshire and of her childish distaste for it some one present made an allusion to a similar childish dislike in the true tale of the terrible knitter's a dent given in southey's commonplace book and she smiled faintly but said that the mere difference in food was not all that the food itself was spoilt by the dirty carelessness of the cook so that she and her sisters disliked their meals exceedingly and she named her relief and gladness when the doctor condemned the meat and spoke of having seen him spit it out these are all the details i ever heard from her she so avoided particularizing that i think mr carus wilson's name never passed between us i do not doubt the general accuracy of my informants of those who have given and solemnly repeated the details that follow but it is only just to miss bronte to say that i have stated above pretty nearly all that i ever heard on the subject from her a clergyman living near kirkby lonsdale the rev william carus wilson was the prime mover in the establishment of this school he was an energetic man sparing no labour for the accomplishment of his ends he saw that it was an extremely difficult task for clergymen with limited incomes to provide for the education of their children and he devised a scheme by which a certain sum was raised annually by subscription to complete the amount required to furnish a solid and sufficient english education for which the parents payment of fourteen pounds a year would not have been sufficient indeed that made by the parents was considered to be exclusively appropriated to the expenses of lodging and boarding and the education provided for by the subscriptions twelve trustees were appointed mr wilson being not only a trustee but the treasurer and secretary in fact taking most of the business arrangements upon himself a responsibility which appropriately fell to him as he lived nearer the school than any one else who was interested in it so his character for prudence and judgment was to a certain degree implicated in the success or failure of cowan bridge school and the working of it was for many years the great object and interest of his life but he was apparently unacquainted with the prime element in good administration seeking out thoroughly competent persons to fill each department and then making them responsible for and judging them by the result without perpetual interference with the details so great was the amount of good which mr wilson did by his constant unwearied superintendence that i cannot help feeling sorry that in his old age and declining health the errors which he was believed to have committed should have been brought up against him in a form which received such wonderful force from the touch of miss bronte's great genius no doubt whatever can be entertained of the deep interest which he felt in the success of the school as i write i have before me his last words on giving up the secretaryship in eighteen fifty he speaks of the withdrawal from declining health of an eye which at all events has loved to watch over the schools with an honest and anxious interest and again he adds that he resigns therefore with the desire to be thankful for all that god has been pleased to accomplish through his instrumentality the infirmities and unworthinesses of which he deeply feels and deplores 
Cowan Bridge is a cluster of some six or seven cottages, gathered together at both ends of a bridge over which the high road from Leeds to Kendal crosses a little stream called the Leck. This high road is nearly disused now, but formerly, when the buyers from the West Riding manufacturing districts had frequent occasion to go up into the north to purchase the wool of the Westmoreland and Cumberland farmers, it was doubtless much travelled and perhaps the hamlet of Cowan Bridge had a more prosperous look than it bears at present. It is prettily situated, just where the Leck fells swoop into the plain, and by the course of the beck alder trees and willows and hazel bushes grow. The current of the stream is interrupted by broken pieces of grey rock, and the waters flow over a bed of large round white pebbles, which a flood heaves up and moves on either side out of its impetuous way, till in some parts they almost form a wall. By the side of the little shallow sparkling vigorous leck run long pasture fields of the fine short grass common in highland, for though Cowan Bridge is situated on a plain, it is a plain from which there is many a fall and long descent before you and the leck reach the valley of the Loon. I can hardly understand how the school there came to be so unhealthy. The air all round about was so sweet and thyme-scented when I visited it last summer. But, at this day, everyone knows that the site of a building intended for numbers should be chosen with far greater care than that of a private dwelling, from the tendency to illness, both infectious and otherwise, produced by the congregation of people in close proximity. The house is still remaining that formed part of that occupied by the school. It is a long, bow-windowed cottage, now divided into two dwellings. It stands facing the leck, between which and it intervenes a space about seventy yards deep that was once the school garden. This original house was an old dwelling of the Picard family, which they had inhabited for two generations. They sold it for school purposes, and an additional building was erected, running at right angles from the older part. This new part was devoted expressly to schoolrooms, dormitories, etc., and after the school was removed to Casterton, it was used for a bobbin mill connected with the stream, where wooden reels were made out of the alders which grow profusely in such ground as that surrounding Cowan Bridge. This mill is now destroyed. The present cottage was, at the time of which I write, occupied by the teacher's rooms, the dinner-room and kitchens, and some smaller bedrooms. On going into this building, I found one part, that nearest to the high road, converted into a poor kind of public house, then to let, and having all the squalid appearance of a deserted place, which rendered it difficult to judge what it would look like when neatly kept up, the broken panes replaced in the windows, and the rough cast, now cracked and discoloured, made white and whole. The other end forms a cottage, with the low ceilings and stone floors of a hundred years ago. The windows do not open freely and widely, and the passage upstairs leading to the bedrooms is narrow and tortuous. Altogether, smells would linger about the house and damp cling to it. But sanitary matters were little understood thirty years ago, and it was a great thing to get a roomy building close to the high road, and not too far from the habitation of Mr. Wilson, the originator of the educational scheme. There was much need of such an institution. Numbers of ill-paid clergymen hailed the prospect with joy, and eagerly put down the names of their children as pupils when the establishment should be ready to receive them. 
Mr. Wilson was no doubt pleased by the impatience with which the realisation of his idea was anticipated, and opened the school with less than a hundred pounds in hand, and with pupils, the number of whom varies according to different accounts, Mr. W. W. Carus Wilson, the son of the founder, giving it as seventy, while Mr. Shepherd, the son-in-law, states it to have been only sixteen. Mr. Wilson felt, most probably, that the responsibility of the whole plan rested upon him. The payment made by the parents was barely enough for food and lodging. The subscriptions did not flow very freely into an untried scheme, and great economy was necessary in all the domestic arrangements. He determined to enforce this by frequent personal inspection, carried perhaps to an unnecessary extent and leading occasionally to a meddling with little matters which had sometimes the effect of producing irritation of feeling. Yet although there was economy in providing for the household, there does not appear to have been any parsimony. The meat, flour, milk, etc., were contracted for, but were of very fair quality, and the dietary which has been shown to me in manuscript was neither bad nor unwholesome, nor on the whole was it wanting in variety. Oatmeal porridge for breakfast, a piece of oat-cake for those who required luncheon, baked and boiled beef and mutton, potato-pie and plain homely puddings of different kinds for dinner. At five o'clock bread and milk for the younger ones, and one piece of bread, this was the only time at which the food was limited, for the elder pupils, who sat up till a later meal of the same description. Mr. Wilson himself ordered in the food, and was anxious that it should be of good quality. But the cook, who had much of his confidence, and against whom for a long time no one durst utter a complaint, was careless, dirty, and wasteful. To some children oatmeal porridge is distasteful, and consequently unwholesome, even when properly made. At Cowanbridge School it was too often sent up not merely burnt, but with offensive fragments of other substances discoverable in it. The beef that should have been carefully salted before it was dressed had often become tainted from neglect, and girls who were schoolfellows with the Brontes during the reign of the cook of whom I am speaking tell me that the house seemed to be pervaded morning, noon, and night by the odour of rancid fat that steamed out of the oven in which much of their food was prepared. There was the same carelessness in making the puddings. One of those ordered was rice boiled in water and eaten with a sauce of treacle and sugar. But it was often uneatable, because the water had been taken out of the rain-tub and was strongly impregnated with the dust lodging on the roof, whence it had trickled down into the old wooden cask, which also added its own flavour to that of the original rain-water. The milk, too, was often bingy, to use a country expression for a kind of taint that is far worse than sourness, and suggests the idea that it is caused by want of cleanliness about the milk-pans rather than by the heat of the weather. On Saturdays a kind of pie or mixture of potatoes and meat was served up, which was made of all the fragments accumulated during the week. Scraps of meat from a dirty and disorderly larder could never be very appetizing, and I believe that this dinner was more loathed than any in the early days of Cowanbridge School. One may fancy how repulsive such fare would be to children whose appetites were small, 
and who had been accustomed to food far simpler perhaps but prepared with a delicate cleanliness that made it both tempting and wholesome at many a meal the little brontes went without food although craving with hunger they were not strong when they came having only just recovered from a complication of measles and whooping cough indeed i suspect they had scarcely recovered for there was some consultation on the part of the school authorities whether Maria and Elizabeth should be received or not in July 1824. Mr. Bronte came again in the September of that year, bringing with him Charlotte and Emily to be admitted as pupils. It appears strange that Mr. Wilson should not have been informed by the teachers of the way in which the food was served up, but we must remember that the cook had been known for some time to the Wilson family, while the teachers were brought together for an entirely different work, that of education. They were expressly given to understand that such was their department. The buying in and management of the provisions rested with Mr. Wilson and the cook. The teachers would, of course, be unwilling to lay any complaints on the subject before him. There was another trial of health common to all the girls. The path from Cowan Bridge to Tunstall Church, where Mr. Wilson preached and where they all attended on the Sunday, is more than two miles in length, and goes sweeping along the rise and fall of the unsheltered country, in a way to make it a fresh and exhilarating walk in summer, but a bitter cold one in winter especially to children like the delicate little Brontes, whose thin blood flowed languidly in consequence of their feeble appetites rejecting the food prepared for them, and thus inducing a half-starved condition. The church was not warmed, there being no means for this purpose. It stands in the midst of fields, and the damp mist must have gathered round the walls and crept in at the windows. The girls took their cold dinner with them, and ate it between the services in a chamber over the entrance opening out of the former galleries the arrangements for this day were peculiarly trying to delicate children particularly to those who were spiritless and longing for home as poor maria bronte must have been for her ill health was increasing and the old cough the remains of the whooping cough lingered about her she was far superior in mind to any of her playfellows and companions, and was lonely amongst them from that very cause. And yet she had faults so annoying that she was in constant disgrace with her teachers and an object of merciless dislike to one of them, who is depicted as Miss Scatcherd in Jane Eyre, and whose real name I will be merciful enough not to disclose. I need hardly say that Helen Burns is as exact a transcript of Maria Bronte as Charlotte's wonderful power of reproducing character could give. Her heart, to the latest day on which we met, still beat with unavailing indignation at the worrying and the cruelty to which her gentle, patient, dying sister had been subjected by this woman. Not a word of that part of Jane Eyre but is a literal repetition of scenes between the pupil and the teacher. Those who had been pupils at the same time knew who must have written the book, from the force with which Helen Burns' sufferings are described. They had before that recognized the description of the sweet dignity and benevolence of Miss Temple as only a just tribute to the merits of one whom all that knew her appear to hold in honour 
but when Miss Scatcherd was held up to opprobrium, they also recognised in the writer of Jane Eyre an unconsciously avenging sister of the sufferer. One of their fellow pupils, among other statements even worse, gives me the following. The dormitory in which Maria slept was a long room, holding a row of narrow little beds on each side, occupied by the pupils, and at the end of this dormitory there was a small bedchamber opening out of it, appropriated to the use of Miss Scatcherd. Maria's bed stood nearest to the door of this room. One morning, after she had become so seriously unwell as to have had a blister applied to her side, the sore from which was not perfectly healed, when the getting-up bell was heard, poor Maria moaned out that she was so ill, so very ill, she wished she might stop in bed, and some of the girls urged her to do so, and said they would explain it all to Miss Temple, the superintendent. But Miss Scatcherd was close at hand, and her anger would have to be faced before Miss Temple's kind thoughtfulness could intervene. So the sick child began to dress, shivering with cold as, without leaving her bed, she slowly put on her black worsted stockings over her thin white legs, my informant spoke as if she saw it yet, and her whole face flushed out undying indignation. Just then Miss Scatcherd issued from her room, and, without asking for a word of explanation from the sick and frightened girl, she took her by the arm, on the side of which the blister had been applied, and by one vigorous movement whirled her out into the middle of the room, abusing her all the time for dirty and untidy habits. There she left her. My informant says Maria hardly spoke, except to beg some of the more indignant girls to be calm. But in slow, trembling movements, with many a pause, she went downstairs at last, and was punished for being late. Anyone may fancy how such an event as this would rankle in Charlotte's mind. I only wonder that she did not remonstrate against her father's decision to send her and Emily back to Cowanbridge after Maria's and Elizabeth's deaths. But frequently children are unconscious of the effect which some of their simple revelations would have in altering the opinions entertained by their friends of the persons placed around them. Besides, Charlotte's earnest, vigorous mind saw, at an unusually early age, the immense importance of education as furnishing her with tools which she had the strength and the will to wield, and she would be aware that the Cowanbridge education was in many points the best that her father could provide for her. Before Maria Bronte's death that low fever broke out in the spring of 1825, which is spoken of in Jane Eyre. Mr. Wilson was extremely alarmed at the first symptoms of this. He went to a kind motherly woman, who had had some connection with the school, as laundress, I believe, and asked her to come and tell him what was the matter with them. She made herself ready and drove with him in his gig. When she entered the schoolroom she saw from twelve to fifteen girls lying about, some resting their aching heads on the table, others on the ground, all heavy-eyed, flushed, indifferent, and weary, with pains in every limb. Some peculiar odour, she says, made her recognise that they were sickening for the fever, and she told Mr. Wilson so, and that she could not stay there for fear of conveying the infection to her own children, but he half commanded and half entreated her to remain and nurse them, and finally mounted his gig and drove away, while she was still urging that she must return to her own house and to her domestic duties, for which she had provided no substitute. 
However, when she was left in this unceremonious manner, she determined to make the best of it, and a most efficient nurse she proved, although, as she says, it was a dreary time. Mr. Wilson supplied everything ordered by the doctors, of the best quality and in the most liberal manner. The invalids were attended by Dr. Batty, a very clever surgeon in Kirkby, who had had the medical superintendence of the establishment from the beginning, and who afterwards became Mr. Wilson's brother-in-law. I have heard from two witnesses, besides Charlotte Bronte, that Dr. Batty condemned the preparation of the food by the expressive action of spitting out a portion of it. He himself, it is but fair to say, does not remember this circumstance, nor does he speak of the fever itself as either alarming or dangerous. About forty of the girls suffered from this, but none of them died at Cowan Bridge, though one died at her own home, sinking under the state of health which followed it. None of the Brontes had the fever. But the same causes which affected the health of the other pupils through typhus told more slowly but not less surely upon their constitutions. The principle of these causes was the food. The bad management of the cook was chiefly to be blamed for this. She was dismissed, and the woman who had been forced against her will to serve as head nurse took the place of housekeeper, and henceforward the food was so well prepared that no one could ever reasonably complain of it. Of course, it cannot be expected that a new institution, comprising domestic and educational arrangements for nearly a hundred persons, should work quite smoothly at the beginning. All this occurred during the first two years of the establishment, and in estimating its effect upon the character of Charlotte Bronte, we must remember that she was a sensitive, thoughtful child, capable of reflecting deeply, if not of analyzing truly and peculiarly susceptible, as are all delicate and sickly children, to painful impressions. What the healthy suffer from but momentarily and then forget, those who are ailing brood over involuntarily and remember long, perhaps with no resentment but simply as a piece of suffering that has been stamped into their very life. The pictures, ideas, and conceptions of character received into the mind of the child of eight years old were destined to be reproduced in fiery words a quarter of a century afterwards. She saw but one side of Mr. Wilson's character, and many of those who knew him at that time assure me of the fidelity with which this is represented, while at the same time they regret that the delineation should have obliterated, as it were, nearly all that was noble or conscientious and that there were grand and fine qualities in Mr. Wilson, I have received abundant evidence. Indeed, for several weeks past I have received letters almost daily bearing on the subject of this chapter, some vague, some definite, many full of love and admiration for Mr. Wilson, some as full of dislike and indignation, few containing positive facts. After giving careful consideration to this mass of conflicting evidence, I have made such alterations and omissions in this chapter as seem to me to be required. It is but just to state that the major part of the testimony with which I have been favored from old pupils is in high praise of Mr. Wilson. Among the letters that I have read, there is one whose evidence ought to be highly respected. It is from the husband of Miss Temple. She died in 1856, but he, a clergyman, 
thus wrote in reply to a letter addressed to him on the subject by one of mr wilson's friends often i have heard my late dear wife speak of her sojourn at cowan bridge always in terms of admiration of mr carus wilson his parental love to his pupils and their love for him of the food and general treatment in terms of approval i have heard her allude to an unfortunate cook who used at times to spoil the porridge but who she said was soon dismissed the recollections left of the four bronte sisters at this period of their lives on the minds of those who associated with them are not very distinct wild strong hearts and powerful minds were hidden under an enforced propriety and regularity of demeanour and expression just as their faces had been concealed by their father under his stiff unchanging mask maria was delicate unusually clever and thoughtful for her age gentle and untidy of her frequent disgrace from this last fault of her sufferings so patiently borne i have already spoken the only glimpse we get of elizabeth through the few years of her short life is contained in a letter which i have received from miss temple the second elizabeth is the only one of the family of whom i have a vivid recollection from her meeting with a somewhat alarming accident in consequence of which i had her for some days and nights in my bedroom not only for the sake of greater quiet but that i might watch over her myself her head was severely cut but she bore all the consequent suffering with exemplary patience and by it won much upon my esteem of the two younger ones if two there were i have very slight recollections save that one a darling child under five years of age was quite the pet nursling of the school this last would be emily charlotte was considered the most talkative of the sisters a bright clever little child her great friend was a certain Melanie Hayne, so Mr. Bronte spells the name, whose brother paid for her schooling, and who had no remarkable talent except for music, which her brother's circumstances forbade her to cultivate. She was a hungry, good-natured, ordinary girl, older than Charlotte, and ever ready to protect her from any petty tyranny or encroachments on the part of the elder girls. Charlotte always remembered her with affection and gratitude. I have quoted the word bright in the account of charlotte i suspect that this year of eighteen twenty five was the last time it could ever be applied to her in the spring of it maria became so rapidly worse that mr bronte was sent for he had not previously been aware of her illness and the condition in which he found her was a terrible shock to him he took her home by the Leeds coach, the girls crowding out into the road to follow her with their eyes over the bridge, past the cottages, and then out of sight for ever. She died a very few days after her arrival at home. Perhaps the news of her death falling suddenly into the life of which her patient existence had formed a part, only a little week or so before, made those who remained at Cowan Bridge look with more anxiety on Elizabeth's symptoms which also turned out to be consumptive. She was sent home in charge of a confidential servant of the establishment, and she too died in the early summer of that year. Charlotte was thus suddenly called into the responsibilities of eldest sister in a motherless family. She remembered how anxiously her dear sister Maria had striven, in her grave, earnest way, 
to be a tender helper and a counsellor to them all and the duties that now fell upon her seemed almost like a legacy from the gentle little sufferer so lately dead both charlotte and emily returned to school after the midsummer holidays in this fatal year but before the next winter it was thought desirable to advise their removal as it was evident that the damp situation of the house at Cowanbridge did not suit their health. Footnote. With regard to my own opinion of the present school, I can only give it as formed after what was merely a cursory and superficial inspection, as I do not believe that I was in the house above half an hour, but it was and is this that the house at casterton seemed thoroughly healthy and well kept and is situated in a lovely spot that the pupils looked bright happy and well and that the lady superintendent was a most prepossessing looking person who on my making some inquiry as to the accomplishments taught to the pupils said that the scheme of education was materially changed since the school had been opened I would have inserted this testimony in the first edition had I believed that any weight could be attached to an opinion formed on such slight and superficial grounds. End of footnote. End of section 5.